My name is Emma Hathaway, but you can call me Emmy. <laughs> this is a joke, right? Some sort of Prince and Company initiation? Who hired you? Hollywood. Nobody hired me, Jonathan. You know who I am. No, no, this can't be happening. I know the sign. The electricity? My brain synapse. It was destroyed. <laughs> I felt so sorry for you last night. You looked so lost and lonely. Well, that's not you saw me? Well, no, you can't beat her. When you were making me, didn't you feel a certain inspiration? Almost like your hands were being moved by a force not of this world. You made this body so that I could come to life. No, I said, mind the twilight zone, am I just not? <laughs> so glad I picked you. Hey, I'm going to create someone who doesn't like me. Hello, and welcome to the When We Were Young podcast, where we take a look at the pop culture hits of our youth and determine whether they're still vibrant and vivacious, or whether time, or Egyptian gods, or a cursed necklace have turned them into cold, expressionless, painted fiberglass. <laughs> I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to fight and kiss boys, often at the same time. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to freeze every time I wear expensive jewelry. <laughs> And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to put a rubber glove on his head and run naked around the store yelling, Hi, I'm a squid! I don't even remember that part. <laughs> I had to rewind it more is, than once. Is that the Howie Mandel act? That was a Nostalgia Getty line. <laughs> I had to rewind it and Google it just to make sure that I was hearing it correctly. And that is an actual line in an actual movie. Well, as you can hear, we're all very excited today to welcome you to our podcast, because in this episode, we're revisiting a hit movie that is referenced constantly as a touchstone of 80s movie zaniness, 1987's Mannequin, starring Kim Cattrall and Andrew McCarthy. Jump head back into DeLorean, a Saturday morning, cause we both be cynical and radical, but was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Before we take a stroll by the dazzling window display where it appears that Becky, Chris, and I are riding a three-person bicycle, even though we're sitting perfectly still, I have an opening question inspired by my own rewatches of this often-referenced cinematic classic. What trend or plot device from 1980s movies do you wish would make a comeback? Or alternately, what if any trends or plot devices from 80s movies do we wish would stop coming back and die forever? It doesn't have to be both, if you can't come up with examples of both. And I will go first, because I'm the most important person. Also, I need examples. I'll give you some examples. I really do not miss when movies used to break out into music video montage sequences. <laughs> I've always found that super cheesy. It always grinds the story of the movie to a complete halt without really advancing the story at all or showing us anything about the characters that we don't already know. And I feel like that has been parodied so many times now that it's hard to even enjoy ironically at this point. On the other hand, I do very much miss when movies used to just have a dog. <laughs> And we need to bring that back. Like a dog that would just like have like facial expressions to the camera? Yeah, like the dog would belong to some character or another, but really the point was just that a dog was there <laughs> and was part of the story and was involved in the action. 
and they'd give the dog a hijink or a few hijinks, and maybe the dog would get a little hurt, but you always knew the dog would be just fine in the end. Yeah, I personally don't understand why every movie now doesn't just have a dog in it somewhere. I agree. The world needs more dogs, and so does Hollywood. Yeah. Tinseltown, take note. I have to say, I think I'm just mostly thinking of this particular movie, but I'm sure this is in other movies from that era. I don't like it when women are just continuously harassed by men throughout the movie. And then more often than not, at the end, they're like, oh, fine. (laughs) They like, fuck them. (laughs) Or like, agree, like, fine, if you just like stop harassing me, I'll sleep with you. Is that not how heterosexual (laughs) courtship actually works? (laughs) Yeah, is it it not just a total war of attrition for heterosexual people? That doesn't mean that it should be in the movies, even if that's how it is in real life. Yeah, I can really live without that, I gotta say. Yeah, I think we'll discuss that plot point (laughs) among many others in this episode. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot of, like, John Hughes stuff has uh, stuff like that. Even things like Family Matters, which was 90s, he's just harassing Laura the whole show, and we're supposed to still, like, enjoy being around him in some way, you know? And we're supposed to see that as romantic pursuit. Yeah, it's it's disgusting. So I'm really glad, I, I hope that does not continue to be popular in films. Well, I think of the other thing, Chris, do you have one? It doesn't have to be both. Okay. However the spirit moves you. <laughs> spirit of an ancient Egyptian. (laughs) I miss people talking to each other in films. (laughs) Like, movies where people are just at work and they're in a normal kind of workplace and they're having conversations, even if it's a bad conversation. I just feel like movies don't have humans in them anymore. What do you mean? Like, they have... You mean... Like, everything is just so big and it just, like... That's my problem with so many superhero movies. It's not that I don't necessarily enjoy superheroes, but they don't have any normal people in them anymore. Like, the Marvel movies... Like, there's just no, like, sense that this is actually happening on Earth. Every character in them is super, and there's not even really, like, reaction shots of, like, actual humans. Like, there used to be, like, gaping up the sky or something. Or if there is, that's all there is. There aren't even reaction shots. There are just, like, action shots. And the only point of those shots is ever to just hit on the head once again how heroic and good and perfect these people are and how they're not phased by anything. But what that ends up being is just shots of people's still faces on screen doing nothing. Right. It's like (laughs) taking the wrong lesson from the Spielberg face, which was, like, showing the wonder, but it doesn't work if you've never seen that person before (laughs) and never will again. He was so good at showing, like, relatable families, you know, like, the movies would start with, like, a family or a community, and then they would become shocked by something, and, like, all that is left is a shocked face cut to maybe once in a movie. So, I just miss, like, human-scale movies, which I feel like everything, especially in the last couple of years, has to be, like, very meta. Every movie feels like Scream now. Like, every movie is referencing every other movie that came before it, and there aren't... Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are, like, s- some movies and independent movies and but so much of like studio movies like the movies we're talking about today were like studio movies meant to appeal to a broad audience and those movies don't feel like they have anything to do with humanity anymore they're just quips and and characters who feel like they're speaking kind of through a studio or a screenwriter like you can hear the clacking on the keys and like the screenwriter snickering to themselves like about how clever and meta they're being and even though I very much liked that kind of movie as a novelty like with Scream or something it gets a little exhausting nowadays so I miss humans (laughs) I 
love that so much. Like, you put that so perfectly. And it is wild to me how Hollywood as a system and as a business model never really figured out why Spielberg's movies were so successful and why they are so lasting. And I think it is largely not just his aesthetics and, you know, the very good people he always collaborated with, but that ability to go from, like, the gigantic scale to the individual person scale and have both be equally convincing and have dramatic stakes that feed those big moments and have those big moments really make an impact. He's been doing that for, you know, 40 plus years, and he hasn't really changed up that part of his filmmaking, at least. So you would think that at a certain point, you know, the the money men in the industry itself would have actually learned those lessons. But no, I completely agree with you that nearly every mainstream studio product movie is like a commercial for itself, and also a commercial for most other movies. And it's sad because it does make everything feel completely lifeless. And that's before you even get into the ways that kind of CGI and the pre-visualization of movies also removed a lot of the chemistry from it because you're planning out a year or more ahead of time how every single actor is supposed to move and inhabit the space of every single moment of the movie before you've ever shot a frame. And I just think that that process also gives actors so much less to work with. Yeah, and the other thing I think I kind of miss at least in a way, is bonkers ideas. Like, because everything is so thought through and just kind of recycling (laughs) Spider-Man endlessly (laughs) that, like, a movie like Mannequin, I mean, might be made on the cheap, you know, in a weird sub thing or buried on Netflix, but as a, like, actual movie that comes out, like, nothing that's bonkers would come out today. Not from the major studios. No. And so I kind of miss that sort of just, like, eh, let's do it. Like, let's shoot it like who cares how it comes out seriously (laughs) that's what you miss i guess seriously like i found myself missing high concept movies (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's like you know 15 or 20 years ago that would have been the trend that i would say you know let's kill this forever but i agree with you and very much miss movies that had just completely bonkers concepts and that had the courage of their convictions to actually follow through on them And I'm with Becky, I think, on what I would want to get rid of, is it is hard to watch certain movies and just the way that they treat women or minorities or gay people or all of the above. It's just like, wow. Like, Like even in some movies I love, there's like one or two moments where it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, that was real bad. (laughs) Like, ooh, that was really homophobic right there. And then it goes back to a great story. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, boy. Okay. And now it's time for some mannequin facts. Mannequin comes from the French word mannequin. (laughs) You started from the beginning. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We're turning the dial way back here. Well, as we learned from these movies, the history of mannequins goes back much further than we would have ever guessed. (laughs) (laughs) So the French word mannequin acquired the meaning an artist's jointed model, which in turn came from the Flemish word mannequin, meaning little man or figurine. Shop mannequins are derived from dress forms used by fashion houses for dressmaking. The use of mannequins originated in the 15th century to demonstrate fashions for customers. Full-scale wickerwork mannequins came into use in the mid-18th century. Wirework mannequins were manufactured in Paris from 1835. Mannequins were later made of wax to produce a more lifelike appearance. And modern-day mannequins are made from a variety of materials, the primary ones being fiberglass and plastic. And future Sex in the City stars. <laughs> They're all, that's a subset of them. That's a, okay. that's a niche market. 
plastic mannequins are a relatively new innovation and are built to withstand the hustle, you know, of store floors and all the foot traffic that comes with that. And fiberglass mannequins are usually more expensive, tend not to be as durable, but are significantly more impressive and realistic. Stories of statues or dolls come to life have been told for thousands of years. In ancient Greek mythology, Pygmalion fell in love with one of his sculptures, which then came to life. The Pygmalion myth became an extremely popular subject in literature throughout the 19th century. It was turned into a large number of popular poems and books across Europe and America, and Victorian-era British playwrights adapted it theatrically starting around the 1870s. Most famously, George Bernard Shaw in 1912 wrote his play Pygmalion, and that opened a great acclaim in London and New York in 1914. Shaw was inspired by many of the other theatrical adaptations of the myth that came before, but his was the most resounding success, and the play itself has been adapted in the 1938 film Pygmalion, the 1956 stage musical My Fair Lady, and its classic and award-winning 1964 film version. We will not be talking about any of these beloved classic (laughs) movies at all. (laughs) I think I would have liked My Fair Lady a little bit more if she had just been a dummy, though. (laughs) (laughs) Mannequins in movie facts. Not only have mannequins been characters in movies since the very start, even the idea of a mannequin either becoming a real woman or being switched out with a real woman has been a convention of cinema for over 122 years. (laughs) I sent our co-hosts a one-minute short film from 1900 by Georges Méliès called L'Artiste et le Mannequin, The Artist and the Mannequin. Georges Méliès was one of the earliest artistic pioneers and innovators of filmmaking, and in this comedic short film, a seemingly pretty buffoonish or oblivious artist is starting to create a painting from a mannequin posed in the other corner of the room. When the artist turns his back, the artist's assistant and a beautiful woman hiding nearby in the corner conspire as a prank to replace the mannequin with the real woman. The artist puts his hand up her skirt and grabs her legs to reposition the mannequin in place, and when he turns around again to pick something up, she grabs a nearby pole and wax him with it, and that's where it ends. So it's a bit interesting that even in 1900, again, 122 years ago, the plot device of mannequins being replaced by real women was used as a pretext for men in movies to grab at women's bodies and feel them up. At least she hit him over the head. It sounds more feminist than mannequin like Seriously, it's more (laughs) feminist than a lot of movies now. Yeah. So now some mannequin facts about the film we're discussing today. The inspiration for the 1987 film Mannequin came in 1982 when Michael Gottlieb was walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City and thought he saw a mannequin move in the window of Bergdorf Goodman department store. He realized it was an optical illusion engineered with moving lights and shadows, and he wondered what would happen if a mannequin actually came to life. Paramount Pictures initially bought the script by Michael Gottlieb and his friend Ed Rugoff, but kept it in turnaround, so they bought it back and sold it to producer David Begelman's Gladden Entertainment Corporation. In addition to writing the screenplay, Rugoff served as the film's executive producer while Gottlieb was the director. A note about Mannequin's conception and development here, because this movie was also a watershed moment in the burgeoning dominance of polling and market research to craft filmmaking. Mannequin was also produced by Joseph Farrell, the father of Hollywood market research. In 1978, alongside his partner Catherine Pora, Farrell founded the National Research Group, Hollywood's first market research firm. Their firm worked alongside all the major studios and developed concepts like the four-quadrant movie, and pushed for more film franchising, box office forecasting, tweaking of release dates, increased test screening, and exit polling on releases. So you're telling me this movie was seen by people and it still turned out this way (laughs) upon release? This was the result of what people want, apparently. This is what happens when you ask people. This is what the people want. This was what people wanted. That is the sadder but truer answer to your question. 
Mannequin was one of only two movies produced by Farrell, and it was designed from its inception for maximum appeal to a young female demographic, with casting, advertising, and release date all centering on this goal. The research also directed them to change the main character in the script from an older gentleman to a young, handsome Andrew McCarthy. The movie was initially titled Perfect Timing, but the title changed to Mannequin by the time principal photography began in March 1986. I mean, that's a better title as Mannequin. It, it's a, it says yeah, it what it's it is. Much better title. <laughs> yeah. yeah, puts it right on Front Street because <laughs> there's so much subtext you don't want people to get lost. The movie shot on location in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, filming in the iconic John Wanamaker department store, which became Price & Company in the movie. Boscoff's department store in a shopping mall near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, stood in for the rival Illustra department store. They filmed at night at these department stores after the last customers left. Distributor 20th Century Fox initially planned to release the film in early March 1987, but pushed the release date up to February 13th, 1987, the day before Valentine's Day, after positive test screenings. I was going to say, when you said the, the, the release date was based on the demographic, I was like, I bet it was Valentine's Day. That's right. That means we're right up against the uh, 30, 35 fifth anniversary is that is that correct i believe so mannequin was released february 13th 1987 the budget was approximately six million dollars there is no firm figure available and apparently that was something the producers kept very close to their vest i think there was a firm figure available in this film Mm. oh my god get (laughs) out (laughs) slap get in the tank The gross domestic box office in U.S. and Canada was nearly $43 million, which is a huge return on $6 million-ish. It made its budget back, basically, in its opening weekend. No good data is available for the international box office, but I doubt that it was the smash hit that it was here at home. Mannequin stars Kim Cattrall, Andrew McCarthy, Mishak Taylor, James Spader, Carol Davis, Estelle Getty, and G.W. Bailey. The titular mannequin modeled after Kim Cattrall was sculpted by artist Tanya Wolf-Regeer, and Kim Cattrall sat and posed for six different versions of the mannequin Emmy. Wasn't Stan Winston? No, it was Stan Winston was sadly not available for this movie. <laughs> Again, would have been much more interesting. <laughs> and a lot more expensive. <laughs> and a lot goopier. I could have gone for some Jim Henson action with this. Let's give her like a beak or something like that. Fun actor fact. The actor G.W. Bailey, who plays the night security guard, thought Mannequin was going to be a total flop until the day it came out. We didn't think it would ever be released. It was beyond silliness. We would do outrageous double takes over the lines and say that we hadn't done this kind of stuff since high school. And the director would say, more, more, you're going in the right direction with it. That checks out with his actual performance. (laughs) But suddenly the movie was released and here's this old fashioned silly love story, very loosely based on one touch of Venus. And there's not one dirty word in it, not one naked butt. Okay. Okay. The reviews for Mannequin were pretty roundly negative. It has a 20% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. The illustrious Roger Ebert wrote in his review, This movie is a real curiosity. It's dead. I don't mean it's bad. A lot of bad movies are fairly throbbing with life. Mannequin is dead. (laughs) The wake lasts one and a half hours, and then we can leave the theater. Halfway through, I was ready for someone to lead us in reciting the rosary. Wow. And not to be outdone, today we are indeed back on the read a beat. <laughs> back on the read a beat, back on the read a beat, back on the read a beat. I'm being paid for this, correct? I saw the words mannequin, I saw the words read a complete, and I was like, oh, Seth will, Seth will give us what we're looking for here. So Rita Kempley wrote, Mannequin is a movie made by, for, and about dummies. 
Basically, Boy meets Fiberglass Girl, regains his confidence, and makes hundreds of costume changes for the inevitable music video sequence, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. Ain't it the 80s dream come true? This is a movie made for one-stop shoppers. Is it only a movie, or are we still in the mall? Rita is slightly incorrect there, because that is not the song that is used That's in the true. music video sequence. That's but. true. We're gonna we're gonna do a fact check on Rita. We love her, but that song is called Do You Dream About Me? And it's by Alicia. Who went on to bigger and better things, we hope. <laughs> Actually, we never heard of her again. <laughs> hope you're alive. She peaked. Here's a basic plot setup for Mannequin that takes a long time because it's insane. I think we all know. I think we get it at this point. Kim Cattrall plays Emma Hessere, nicknamed nicknamed Emmy, seemingly um, a a member of some kind of upper class of Egyptian society, uh, who begins the movie hiding out and wrapped up like a mummy inside a tomb inside a pyramid because she's trying to avoid an arranged marriage to a camel dung salesman and the boring life that will presumably uh, presumably come from that. Uh, The gods answer her prayer by sending her into the future and into a mannequin in a factory in Philadelphia. Andrew McCarthy plays Jonathan Switcher, a struggling artist who can't hold down a job because he's just too creative and who puts so much of his heart and his passion into creating this mannequin that she is given the gift of life. Meshach Taylor plays Hollywood Montrose, a proud and out gay man who is the window designer at the Prince and Company department store. Estelle Getty plays the owner of the store, the last person in her family to have inherited it. James Spader plays the store's vice president, a sniveling, loose little creep who's trying to sell the store out to its department store competition across town. Jonathan and Emmy work together to create dazzling window displays that drive sales up at Prince and & Company and put the store back on the map, because apparently Philadelphia is on the map as far as fashionable cities go. <laughs> that about covers it. I think it's a good thing that we did a plot summary, because I'm not <laughs> sure how many of our listeners... <laughs> remember every detail of mannequin and there's there's a lot that i've left out it's a plot heavy movie i'll just put it that way so uh my co-hosts did you watch mannequin growing up i think these movies are a testament to vhs covers in (laughs) video rental stores Amen. Because I did not own either Mannequin or Mannequin on the move, but I did see them in the case of Mannequin 2. I think I saw it many times. Probably saw this one more than once. I rented these movies, and this would have been, you know, the the late 80s and early 90s, probably early 90s. At the time, you would just browse the shelves until you saw something that caught your eye, and you'd say, well, that looks like something I'd be into. Children today just have no idea what this is like. They scroll aimlessly through Netflix menus for hours at a time. But I think that's, it's the same thing as looking at covers, the thumbnails. Oh, I don't, I don't think it's the same thing at all. No? Because if you're, because you're like physically in a store, there's a limited amount of time that you've got to be able to look at that stuff. And I think there's something about the physical artifact of it and being able to pick it up and like really examine it that makes it a different experience. So, yeah, the cover of Mannequin 2 in particular is seared into my brain. (laughs) It depicts a trio of people in various stages of surprise and delight riding in a pink convertible. (laughs) A pretty Barbie-esque blonde in a doll pose staring at us with concern that is bordering on dread. A handsome young man in a suit who has a can-you-believe-this-shit-is-happening-to-a-schmo-like-me smirk on his face. (laughs) And a flamboyant gay with a multicolored scarf blowing carefree in the wind who is clearly having the time of his life. (laughs) 
I looked at this and thought, that's what I'm watching tonight. Many, many times. Again, it's what the people wanted. Yeah, the VHS cover, that was all you had to go on as a kid at this time. Is You didn't read reviews. There was no word of mouth. You probably didn't really see ads for this type of film on TV. You just showed up at the video store and saw whatever you liked. You might not even look at the back of the video cassette. You might just go from that front poster. So that's what this reminds me of, is like <laughs> clearly going to a video store and like this was, for whatever reason, the most appealing thing I found on multiple occasions. And you would re-rent it. Yes. I get it. it. That looks like a car full of fun. It really does. <laughs> you can't lie. And I think it kind of speaks to the weirdness of these movies that I'm sure we'll get into, which is, are they for children? <laughs> <laughs> and there were many movies, some of which we've talked about on this podcast, that really straddle a line that m- movies really don't do anymore of being for adults or being for children. This looks like a movie for children, but is it? I'm sure we'll discuss that. But it looked like something made to appeal to children, I think, based on these covers. But I'm not sure the content of the movie actually bears that out. I watched these movies as a child, but that doesn't mean that they're made for children. (laughs) No, in your case, it certainly doesn't. (laughs) I lived in New York growing up, and we had Channel 11, which I think during the day was where I watched like the Disney afternoon but at night it was all movies so I watched so many movies growing up on channel 11 and lots of movies in my brain have commercial breaks because that's just like how I watch them and these two are movies when I when I think of these movies I think of channel 11 and watching them on TV when they were on so it wasn't something that I like liked enough to like own on VHS but it was definitely something that was like oh I'm watching mannequin again or I'm gonna watch mannequin too they kind of just like bled together in my brain like rewatching it now you had a brain bleed watching these movies (laughs) i did i didn't remember a lot but i also was like oh i thought that was in mannequin 2 or oh i thought that was in mannequin 1 so to me they're kind of like the same movie but i must have watched these movies a lot because what i remember more is role-playing these movies with my barbies (laughs) and like my barbies definitely were like up to some adult stuff oh my <laughs> that I was like clearly as a child reenacting from what I saw in movies and TV that were completely inappropriate for how wow. old I was but that's how I thought it out uh-huh. it was like through my Barbies and I remember my Barbie one of them would like be a mannequin and then Ken you know and like should come to life like I remember this part of my play wow <laughs> was Barbie on the move <laughs> She did have a camper. <laughs> was this actually your sexual education? Barbie mannequining? I mean, if we're going to get into this, <laughs> like, I remember thinking when I was little, how babies were born was that I thought you had to lay in a bed with a man and have <laughs> the mannequin and, ha- and, and the man lays on top and you like press your genitals and nipples together a <laughs> hundred times. <laughs> Wait, where did that come from? And then the hundredth time. You're pregnant. (laughs) So you could go 99 times and then stop. That's basically the pulling out method, right? (laughs) Yes, because I remember doing this with my Barbies. And... (laughs) This is why we need sex education in schools, Honestly. I mean, I don't know how old I was. I was old enough to play with Barbies. How old are you then? Yeah, so I I remember this movie a lot because I think I, I we'll talk about it. I don't think it's for children because clearly there are 
are some things in it that children just don't get and understand like when Kim Cattrall like flashes him or when they're like laying don't they have sex in this movie like it's not a kids movie it's not but it appeals to children yeah. like me <laughs> yeah and this is what happens when they watch this movie is they have a lot of questions they don't feel comfortable asking their parents <laughs> god I'm glad I pressed on that <laughs> I'm so glad don't press on it a hundred times though <laughs> 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 I gotta take a second to regroup after that. I love what we learn on this show. That's so beautiful. 102 episodes and we're still getting these Honestly, pearls out of Becky. Yeah, this makes up for like one and a half of my stories from previous episodes. <laughs> Like both of you, I'm positive that I not only picked up the mannequin VHSs at Blockbuster and insisted on bringing them home, I also distinctly remember seeing these on basic cable, either on like TBS or there was a there was a network in Chicago, WGN, on the basic cable lineup, and they would constantly show 80s movies with limited commercial interruption. And so I just remember, again, in a kind of formless bled together timeless void watching movies like Mannequin, Crocodile Dundee, Short Circuit. Those those are all Channel 11 movies that absolutely. I watched. Absolutely. Yeah. So I completely remember both of those ways uh taking in the Mannequin saga from the book of Mannequin. <laughs> Rewatching them now, I realize that almost everything that I remembered was from the first Mannequin movie. There are definitely two movies that I had not felt the need to revisit at any time since then. They did not leave me with questions that were so burning I needed to revisit to figure out the answers. I just think it's funny that you guys mention watching these movies on TV because I was not a movie on TV person. And I know we've... Me- you know, kind of talked about you guys seeing other movies on TV. And I don't think I ever really say that that's where I saw a movie because I was such a purist. Like (laughs) even back then I was like, I must start the movie from the beginning. You're such a snob. And I found the ads so intrusive as I still do. I get very mad if, if, if a film is interrupted, I I just always watch from my collection. Even when that collection was like those like big white VHS Disney movies. And that's all I had. I was like, Nope, it's got to come out of the collection. I'm kind of with you, but not for these movies. Like, even back then, I knew a movie that I thought was, like, my favorite movie. You know, like, the Disney back then. Like, I had those on VHS, and that is how I would watch it. But these movies, the commercials became part of the movie, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, the commercial breaks feel like part of it. And in some cases, we're probably better, so... So that was then. And what did we think of watching Mannequin now? My first response when I first switched play on (laughs) Mannequin, you know, a few seconds in was like, whose idea was this episode? (laughs) (laughs) Not the movie, but I think episode. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then immediately I remembered that it was mine. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would like to issue an apology to my co-hosts. And to our listeners <laughs> for suggesting that we do this, because I didn't remember particularly Mannequin 1 very well. I remembered it was Kim Cattrall, and I remembered a few scenes that I'm sure we'll touch on. But my just pop culture memory was that Mannequin 1 was like a fairly like grounded rom-com, obviously with a 
fantastic premise, but like a splash kind of movie. Right. Like a competently right. made film, you know, that like fluffy but fun. Yeah. And that, it, you know, that was going to be the first movie. And then the second one was going to be like a real dip in quality. <laughs> this one's where they really go off the rails. <laughs> and yeah. I don't want to spoil any feelings for the second film <laughs> because we'll discuss those. There's not a big difference in quality between these films. Like, this was not a solid film that then had a bad sequel. And I even think the reputation kind of still feels that way in some of like, the reviews that I read and just that like people are much more negative on Mannequin 2. But I'm like, this is not a good film to start with. And... <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll stop there for now. Uh, but this is not like a My Girl and My Girl 2 situation. This no. is a even playing field <laughs> that is way down low. You took the words out of my mouth when you said Splash, because I did not remember a lot of these movies besides, you know, enjoying them as a child and being confused by them as a child. Um, but when I was going to return, I was like, oh, I think this is going to be like Splash, which is the Tom Hanks movie with Daryl Hannah. She's a mermaid. You know, a fantastical premise, but actually very sweet. I didn't think it would be as high quality as that. Like, what is that? Rob Reiner directed that? Uh, Ron Howard. Ron Howard. So, you know, pedigree. I didn't think it would be that high, but like, I still thought it would be like a fun romp with some really over the top moments, but it was not Splash. <laughs> it was, it was. It was a drip. <laughs> It literally felt like... Jumping into an empty pool? <laughs> it felt like... Thud. <laughs> yeah, thud. <laughs> it felt like a movie where a guy was like, I want to make a movie. And he writes a script on his word processor. And then he hands out <laughs> photocopies to his family members because he can't even convince his friends to like participate. <laughs> and, and, then, and then they film it like over a couple weekends. <laughs> Like, that's what this movie felt like. And, like, his mom owns a department store. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And a hang glider. That's a key... <laughs> Those are key points. His dad is a hang glider. <laughs> Those are key points. Yeah, there. he's like, what do I have around me? That's what this movie felt like in terms of the the script and, and the acting and the filmmaking quality. Just, like, what quality? Like, it was... <laughs> surprisingly terrible because i think that like mannequin 2 does have a worse reputation i think it is crazier which is saying something but it is not as it's not worse it's just as bad yeah this one in particular has what i wrote down as like a sexual harassment video that you would watch like to train your employees to not like sexually harass each other yeah like it has that kind of level that's the c plot of this movie (laughs) yeah uh seth well, I loved it. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> you can still love it, you know? Like. It's a terrible movie that part of me enjoys watching very much. Which part? It's the kid in me and just the super nostalgia trip of not just, like, this this movie on its own merits or lack of merits, but also just how much it's been referenced and really how much of an 80s touchstone it is as a pop culture artifact. Looking up box office numbers of it, I was kind of surprised that it only made as much money as it did. It's a great box office performance and, you know, obviously made many multiple times its budget back, but I feel like it had a lot more influence on the pop cultural zeitgeist after it was out and in other things in my childhood 
Like, I remember this movie being kind of mentioned or the plot points being directly ripped off, like in a lot of like the the Tiny Toon Adventures cartoons and like Animaniacs. It was popular at the time. It was really popular at the time, but it became a kind of thing that was kind of a pop culture touchstone that outweighed its actual success as a movie. Well, it was probably a big hit on VHS. Yeah, We're saying that we all remember seeing it in video stores. I bet it made a ton of, because I think it is the kind of movie that a lot of people would be like, I'll wait for video, but then they would definitely rent the video. I bet it made a shit ton of money on VHS, and it was kind of one of those things where I was a bit disappointed that, you know, there are no real repositories for that kind of information about, like, how much money a particular movie made in the rental market. Again, like, we're all talking about, and like we've said so many times on the show, in that time in our lives, movie rentals were one of the main ways that we saw movies, especially movies that we wouldn't necessarily be able to see or want to go see in a theater. I think it's a terrible movie that has a really, really wacky fun premise. It's a very stupid premise at the same time, but I feel like this movie could have made for a really fantastic body horror film, because just the idea of an inanimate doll being inhabited by the spirit of a woman inherently has a lot of contradiction and conflict within it. But having said that, again, like there are images that stuck with me just because I saw this movie so much, but as each of those moments came up, like the hang glider thing, it was like, none of them were very well done. None of them actually earned the wackiness or zaniness of their premise. And they kind of tried to lean everything in this Looney Tunes, all ages appropriate comic direction that everyone involved clearly didn't have the comedic chops to really make them pay off. What was it in the 80s where there were so many movies where a magical-ish woman comes to life and immediately throws herself at the first man she sees? Because it's both these movies. It is Splash, though I remember liking Splash. Weird science. Absolutely. I'm I'm sure there's more. And the guys are never worthy. It's so like wish fulfillment of these like straight white men who are conventionally attractive, but kind of like maybe like not like the buff guy. They're kind of like the loser, even though they're not really losers, but like uh, they're not so confident. And they it's like this wish fulfillment of these beautiful, gorgeous, magical women throwing themselves at them. I'm also thinking of like Bill and Ted with the princesses. Yes. Um, here, this is something from the eighties. I hope to not return. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was continued in the nineties, but with like just like the hot girl at school or something, like in all mm-hmm. the like. Oh, like uh, Kennerly Waite and stuff? Yeah, it is a real trope. And it, I think it's sadly just guy screenwriters who can't imagine legitimate reasons why women would find <laughs> the, the guy who's probably a proxy for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Because they're often especially written as, like, doofy, kind of, like, nerdy guys. Even if they're kind of often played by a more, like, handsome actor. Like, they're written more Mm -hmm. as, like, a loser kind of guy. And I think they just can't, like, come up with an actual reason why women should like them. So, a magical curse will do it. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Yeah, and it's... it's very much like, especially in this, it's very much the case that, you know, there's absolutely no motivation that Emmy has other than to literally serve Jonathan and, and love him as a service, you know, literally in the way of like a concubine. Right. I mean, we have to talk about the opening of this film. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> which I did not remember whatsoever. I did, I not did remember, remember in Mannequin 2 that there was like a magical plot. Yes. But for some reason, that is much more memorable than this one. <laughs> 
because is it because Kim Cattrall isn't Egyptian? She isn't. <laughs> Wait, she's not. You guys, I did a lot of research. I couldn't tell if she was Egyptian or not. She's as Egyptian as Genie is Persian. Imagine a Genie <laughs> again. A, a, another magical very woman. apt analogy for magical mm-hmm. man-serving women. Yep. And her mom in this movie <laughs> it looks more Egyptian just through like costuming and makeup, but is a Jewish New Yorker. Yes. <laughs> And is not even trying to, like, hide that fact. She's, like, the pharaoh has hemorrhoids is a joke. Like, it's just, like... I mean, they're not going for authenticity at all, but it is just bizarre. Because Kim Cattrall, Emmy is her name, apparently. I I, uh, literally couldn't have told you her name after watching this whole entire movie because I don't think anyone speaks to her as if she has a name. Yeah. She just sort of wishes to get out of her situation and then does. All right, so he sells camel dung. Forget it. You forget it. Mother, I don't want to settle down. I want to do things. I want to invent things. I want to try things that nobody's ever tried before. I want to fly. Sure. And I want to smoke and tell your father to go to hell. Mm. Oh, Emmy. If I thought we women could anyway change anything, don't you think I'd encourage you? No, 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 no. These are the times we live in. Mother, there's got to be a better way. Please, gods, please help me find it. Sure, 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 the Nile is overflowing. There is a weak shortage. The Pharaoh has hemorrhoids. The gods have bigger things to worry about than you. Like, it's just a weird, like, there's no actual god shown or any, like, magic talisman that she's holding. It's just like, the gods are like, okay, like. (laughs) But also, she doesn't get reincarnated right into the mannequin that Jonathan makes that looks just like her. Because she says, like, oh, I've dated, like, Christopher Columbus. Like, she's been going throughout history. Right. And I was like, what? That's one of the many plot threads that is, like, introduced half teased out and then completely abandoned. Yeah. And exists only to like make those quotes about Christopher Columbus and Michelangelo Which and David. Are bad jokes to begin no, with. They're yeah, so they're bad. bad. They're so bad. But then also, um the the opening credits in the movie that happened immediately after her getting beamed out of Egypt uh, is an animated opening credit sequence where, where she's, she's a, a cat. cat. She's a cat, but also... She's Kim Cattrall. Seth, I miss animated openings to movies. I do, too. I do, too. That is that is a good one. I was, not these. I was very delighted that it was... I mean, if I'm going to watch Mannequin, I want there to be a silly animated credit it was. It was actually really fun and just a quick fun fact about that was that they apparently shot under budget for the movie and had $300,000 left over, and that's what they spent it on was the animated opening credits. Okay. That cost $300,000. I know, right? That was my reaction. <laughs> How much did they spend on the movie? $40? <laughs> <laughs> so, the opening credits, they have a Egyptian cat, like, time traveling. <laughs> but, like, that's not exactly what's happening here <laughs> no so i'm just i mean it's like a fine it's it's an amusing enough open there's aliens too at some point but the whole thing is that 
like he made a mannequin and she comes alive in it. So how in the world did she come alive for Christopher Columbus? Like, was there also a mannequin involved there? Like, she needs a way to have her, like, body exist. Yeah. Well, I- and that's the thing is in this movie, there's no real explanation of the mechanism of time travel or or body hopping at all. There is literally no reason they could have just nixed all that and have him create... A wo- like, do a Pygmalion thing, or, like, create a beautiful mannequin that a creepy, pathetic guy is in love with, and then for some reason, we don't need to know why she becomes alive. There's literally this no reason. would have been way better without, yeah, the Egyptian sequence or any hint that she had been around before, because it's, it's all for the sake of the dumbest Christopher Columbus joke I've ever heard. Hi, it's me, Jonathan, remember? Well, guess it was just temporary insanity. Oh, you little Faye. Emmy, you're back. I thought You remind me a little of my old boyfriend, Chris. He didn't have any confidence either. Chris? Who's Chris? Oh, just a sailor. I told him that the world was round and I never saw him again. Christopher Columbus? <laughs> you knew Christopher Columbus? Uh-huh. So, you didn't come here directly from Ed Food then? Oh, no. Along the way, I tried out different times and places, but... None of them ever really seemed right. You didn't happen to run into Michelangelo. 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 Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, he wasn't very interested in me. He was involved with some guy named David. Come on. Were you there? Because also, because she can't be moving she is not on the move in this one (laughs) mannequin still she she can't be moving when other people see her only him that i feel like then it would have been like oh is he going crazy like it could have been that for a while like unreliable narrator again with the with the body horror side of it i feel like there's a dark interpretation where the inherent insanity of what he's going through would be shown on screen and that would have had actual you know stakes and conflict right but instead we know she's an egyptian phantom of some sort and also i totally agree with you becky they should have just gone the pygmalion route because uh, pygmalion literally is a misogynist like he hates all women because he sees these women in a nearby town prostituting themselves and so he creates the perfect woman who could never go out and hoe around out of ivory and like makes an offering to the god aphrodite and aphrodite grants his wish makes the statue into a real woman and like at least that would have stakes for him anteing up to the gods he has actual skin in the game whereas in this movie jonathan has no motivations himself either really until this woman literally falls in her lap yeah yeah, he doesn't do anything for the magic to happen. Like, okay, let's fix this movie. So so maybe Kim Cattrall works with him or is his neighbor or just somebody in his life where he's like in love with them, but he can't have them for whatever reason. She's not into him. So he is a mannequin maker and makes the mannequin look like Kim Cattrall. And then she comes to life and then hijinks ensue. Like, it could have been something like that. Just like, why did she have to be Egyptian? <laughs> so weird well and the script also seems really confused about who she is (laughs) who in quotation marks because i don't think she is anyone but is she like old and wise or is she like new because a lot of times the script treats her like she didn't exist before like she didn't have a whole life this is a woman who is like 20 years old or whatever had a whole life and then like disappeared she she doesn't act like someone who was ever alive before Mm mm-hmm a lot of the humor is like that she doesn't 
understand modern things like music coming out of speakers. But there's also just other stuff where she just literally doesn't seem like a person. Like, this is a weird criticism to have of a character who is a dummy, but she has no personality. <laughs> and it's just really she sad the way she's written. She's a personality being flirty and fun and confident and that's about it even though she's met all these amazing people through history and probably has learned so much and yet has nothing to share yeah she's been she's single-handedly been witness to all the most important turning points in human history (laughs) and and like perkiness is the big thing she got out of that yeah and and fashion I'm a New Yorker, and um, (laughs) I have to say, there are some great window displays at, like, you know, especially during the holidays, where, um, you know, there's beautiful, like, Christmas scenes, or, you know, people, like, make a living and make a very good living in New York and probably, like, really big cities, like, doing window displays for all the huge department stores. Um, In this movie, (laughs) the window displays that cause... A huge crowd. They cause a near riot. They cause Let's put like, it that way. A riot of like, oh my god, this is amazing. The people are literally grabbing people, being like, look at this window display. Yeah. BJ, 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 you won't believe it. Prince and Company has the most incredible window. Oh, uh, I'm talking fab. People were lined up outside to get a peek. What? I just passed there on my way back from the tanning session. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Um, there's nothing happening. <laughs> They're just mannequins. They're just mannequins. clothes with like one prop. <laughs> Or, or in one scene where they're set up as, like, fashion photographers, it's just humans. <laughs> they just put humans in the window, and you only see the backs of them, so you can't tell. And then in other moments, the displays are so elaborate that they couldn't possibly have been done overnight. There's one yeah. where, like, the mannequins are all bicycling in, like, a relay race or something. And it has, like, this complicated engineering and shit <laughs> to, like, move the doll's legs and, like, have them pedaling the pedals of the bicycle. And the scenery behind them is, like, rotating and moving to create the illusion of movement. And we've never gotten any indication whatsoever that Jonathan has any of those, like, practical skills to literally make that happen. But I mean... He's not even the one doing it, isn't it? Hollywood is the one doing the window displays, and Jonathan... She, the mannequin is doing the... She starts off doing the window displays herself. So she's the genius behind this? Yes. And then eventually she's supposed... I think she's supposed to be, like, the muse, but it doesn't make any sense, and, like, the whole plot of the movie hinges on it, is that the store is getting so popular just because they have (laughs) these bare-bones window displays. Jonathan... It is my honor to inform you that starting Monday morning, you will become the youngest vice president of the history of Prince and Company. Congratulations. Like, it becomes the centerpiece of the entire city of Philadelphia. And again, I'm not from Philly. I've visited multiple times. It's a lovely place. (laughs) I have never heard of it described as a fashion hub. But also, even in New York, you're just like, oh, look at that. And then you keep walking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe you'll go inside and use the restroom. <laughs> like, right. There's no set. Like, the point is to show off things that people would buy, like, <laughs> to make them go into the store and buy that look. And there's no sense that that is what's going on here. <laughs> the window displays are completely, like, divorced from actually people going 
and buying anything that's being displayed there. Like, oh yeah, and the whole point of a display. Like, I'm sure they have like contracts with certain like labels and things like that, and that's why they display certain outfits in window mm-hmm. displays. Like, it's not just make the wackiest window display you possibly can. Yeah, and you know, three scenes later or whatever, he basically immediately turns around the fortunes of this flagging department store, but you never see sales actually happening in the store. Like, you don't see customers scrambling to buy stuff. They don't even make an attempt to kind of go through the physical mechanics of how successful Jonathan's plan is. Let's talk about Hollywood. Let's talk about Hollywood. Yeah, why do they keep making such bad movies? (laughs) I guess all artists fall in love with their creations, but you just seem so special. Well, roll over Bill Shakespeare. That is the sweetest sentiment these ears have ever heard. Uh, no, no, no. I was rehearsing a play. I always find it best not to explain. It adds a certain mystique to one's reputation. Uh, No, no. No, I'm, I'm a regular kind of guy, okay? Don't disappoint me. When you're finished with your conversation, please bring her to window number three. Sure, you got it. I'm, uh, I'm Jonathan Switcher. Hollywood. Hollywood Montrose. Doesn't it just sing? Oh, it sings, yeah. I'm a window dresser here. We're going to have fun, fun, fun. I am so glad you're working here. (laughs) You are? Why, of course I am, honey. I never thought they'd hire anyone stranger than me. Hollywood is the window dresser at this department store. He becomes much more in Manic 2 on the Move. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but um, he is a... Is he out? Is he an out gay man? Yes, I mean, he, does he, he is, talk about being yes, gay? He talks about being gay a lot. He is does? He, is he gay? Is he gay? You want to you hear some... I'm not sure that's text. Do you want to hear some trivia? Yeah. The actor is not gay. Really? The actor has made a living playing gay people. But yeah, apparently he's not gay, so... I mean, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem. Um, I just find it really interesting. Yeah. Regardless, I think that Hollywood may have been one of the first gay characters I saw in a movie when I was little. Certainly one of the most gay characters <laughs> that you ever saw in a movie. <laughs> Gayest. And he's not a villain. You know, he doesn't have AIDS in the movie. He does not seen as, ew, let's not go near him. Like, he is one of the main people and we are supposed to love him. Yeah, that is one of the things that surprisingly held up in this movie, asterisk. <laughs> Because, especially in this first movie, the performance is a bit shrill. There is a lot of shrieking. But I did appreciate the way that other characters reacted to him, particularly the protagonist, Jonathan, who, when a security guard is acting homophobic about Hollywood, like, Jonathan actually, like, even sticks up for him and clearly is, like, not on board with the security guard being bigoted. Yeah, calls the guy bigoted jerk to his face, like, the first time they're meeting. Just what is your assignment here tonight, boy? I'm helping Hollywood with the window. Oh, the little Mary has an assistant now, huh? Where do you people come from? Ohio. Ohio? You mean they got him in Ohio? So, you like your new assignment? Could have been worse. Could have put me on with a bigoted jerk. Hold it there, boy! Did you have anybody particular in mind? You think he meant anybody in particular, Rambo? 
And, like, there are jokes where Hollywood is, like, saying, like, oh, do my thighs look fat and things like that. And ten years later, like, we've seen movies where a straight male protagonist would have been like, what? I'm not gay. Like, why would you ask me that? And he's just like, I don't know. Like, it's not my thing, you know, but he's very casual about it and not judgmental. Mm -hmm. And so I really did appreciate that they just let Hollywood be Hollywood and didn't, like, make jokes at his expense that he is treated as an equal part of the action. He references his own, like, relationships and, you know, kind of lightly talks about his sex life or love life and not in a way where we're supposed to cringe at it, which, I mean, up until recently and probably still, like, there are a lot of movies that would go there. And in 1987, for a movie to just show that was, like, very surprising. Yeah, I may be out on a limb on this, but I think Hollywood Montrose is one of the least home homophobic gay characters I've ever seen in a movie, especially nowadays. I feel like any other gay character, especially in any similarly toned movie, would be completely sexless, 100% mm-hmm. desexualized, like neutered, and he's not. But moreover, I think Hollywood's the hero of this movie, and especially of the sequel. He is the pivot point around which all of the action of this movie happens. Without him, Jonathan never would have met Emmy. Without his design skills, they would never have done, like, the windows. In a way, it almost feels like Hollywood's character is himself like a conduit to the spirit world, like serving as a figure who kind of mediates between the real world and the fantasy of the movie. And I love that the movie gives him credit for it and in no way looks down on him. Wouldn't this be a better movie if there was no Jonathan and it was just Hollywood <laughs> and a mannequin who came to life inspiring him to like create awesome yeah. window displays? This is what I came away with. Why was this movie not the story of Hollywood? Because it, ha- it had to be a romance and... Well, and a gay man who has a sex life would not be able to be the lead. That's what's confusing about the way that it's written now is that they have Jonathan come in and then suddenly start taking credit for window displays, which is Hollywood's job. Mm-hmm. And then he's just kind of sidelined and being like, oh, I guess you and this mannequin are going to do my awesome window displays. Well, cool. and he's like, y- y'all are the real genius. But they should have had Jonathan be an executive and then the mannequin and Hollywood are like working together and like Jonathan can still have a romance with her or something. But like, it doesn't really make sense to have him just suddenly be like, oh, like, look at me mm-hmm. doing window displays out of nowhere. Yeah, similar point in a different character. I almost came away wishing that Emmy would not have been transformed into a real woman or wishing that what Jonathan had actually fell in love with was just the mannequin and that if she were transformed into a woman that Jonathan would be like disappointed somehow. Like there would be so many other more creative, more dramatically interesting ways of like setting up that relationship. But I just really appreciated that in this movie there are some scenes where he goes sissy and stereotypical and flamboyant like to the point where it's a bit embarrassing and cringy now but for the most part he just plays a very femme and open gay guy and that is shocking to see in movies i mean honestly it's also kind of shocking now because the kind of mincing muley gays are usually skinny white guys or Gay characters in movies now have to be conventionally super butch, super muscular white men. Going in, I expected him to be much more cringy, and I expected his whole character to leave a really bad taste in my mouth for how it represented gay people. And I think he is the least worst aspect of this movie, and definitely of the sequel. He's my favorite part of this movie, where... 
anytime he was on screen, I was like, I'm going to enjoy this scene. Yeah. Not because it's well written, but like, I feel like he's committing. I think he's actually like, not the best actor in the world, but he's a good actor. And he's like putting on a performance and everyone else is trying trying to like just memorize their lines and get them out. And I feel like he's actually like a presence. He's the only like live person in this movie, I think. He's the only character who makes sense. Like you that actually too? know who he is and what he wants and is doing. And everyone else is written in such a confusing way. You're like, what? Like... That doesn't make sense. Like, he's the only one with a logic to his character. And it's very surprising that the gay black man is the only (laughs) one who comes across well in the 1987 (laughs) dumb comedy. I'm shocked that this movie didn't have more people eye-rolling at him or like, ew, don't touch me. I'm shocked and pleased. Yeah, one of the first things we see is that security guard saying something homophobic. and I was like, like, your new assignment. Yeah, and I was like, oh, no, here we go. Because I thought the whole movie was going to take that. And then they immediately have Jonathan be like, fuck you, dude. The one moment of attempted homophobia. There was another moment much later in the movie. Jonathan is with Emmy inside the women's bathroom. Like, he takes the Emmy doll into the women's room. And the co-workers, who are now all his underlings, because he's the vice president, are all eavesdropping on him. And the button for that one scene kind of stood out to me in a bad way. Oh, please, Jonathan, do not let them turn me out into that dark night alone. Hollywood, we can talk about designs and stuff, but when I work, I gotta work alone. Of course. I understand perfectly. You're an artiste, and that's the way you work. I can respect that. (laughs) Hollywood, listen, don't worry. You can work as long as you want here. I'm a vice president now. Either our new vice president, the fairy, or the dummy. Oh. Um, But that was literally the one other thing I could reach for or remember from that movie that even felt a little bit Mm -hmm. like it was looking down on them. It was a very pleasant surprise. And for me, this movie, the only times this movie comes alive are when Hollywood's on the screen or driving his massive pink Cadillac (laughs) convertible, which I also absolutely love. Uh, The only other one thing I wanted to mention, there's a scene near the end where our lead characters are chased down a hallway in the back of the department store. They're heading to try to save Emmy because Roxy, the bitch of an ex-girlfriend, steals the mannequin and is going to put her into an industrial shredder machine. And in that moment where they're like trying to chase the police off, Hollywood shoots the police with a fire hose. And I felt like that was an image that's so loaded that the creators of this movie couldn't have possibly consciously thought of it like that. But it was a very interesting image to me. There's so much hijinks, I I can barely remember. (laughs) Yeah. It was an interesting choice to have the gay character do something physical to, like, fend off the police like that's usually the straight man's job you know so it was it was interesting well and specifically in the civil rights era police would turn water cannons on black people you know when they were trying to protest or so maybe that was why they did it 
again, it's I'm like not I, sure they. I, I don't think they consciously that, understood though. that, but it was just one of those things that, in retrospect, is like that's a surprisingly powerful image. There's so much sitcom acting in this movie. Oh, I mean, yes. that's basically all it is. I mean, even Hollywood is a little sitcommy, but just in a way where he would steal the show yeah. and become the Urkel of whatever the mannequin <laughs> sitcom is. He's Urkeling. He's Urkeling. But who do you think? is the worst character slash actor in this movie. Okay, okay. Here are the nominees. Here are the nominees. We got Estelle Getty. We got the security guard. That's the security guard at the end who's like, who kisses. No, there's two. Okay. There's two. So that is a janitor who becomes the security guard in the second one. Okay, I remember the security guard. We've got Andrew McCarthy. We've got Kim Cattrall. We've got James Spader. We've got... Girlfriend. The ex-girlfriend. Oh, the ex-girlfriend. Oh, I think it's the guy that's trying to sleep with the ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I think it's Roxy or the guy that she works with. No, it's the guy that she works with is my choice. That is the correct answer. (laughs) That is also what I was going to say. And even before Seth asked this question, I wrote in my notes, I don't miss characters whose entire personality is sexual harassment. Yeah. And that's what he is. is all, Every single line of his dialogue is sexually harassing mm-hmm. Roxy. I don't think there's another like, line. We're, we're not exaggerating. I know we've gotten comments and reviews that accuse us of like reading too much into the material that we're covering. <laughs> that was one asshole. But anyway. <laughs> there yeah, were other assholes. There were, there were two. Yeah. I saw there were two. Yeah. But Chris is not exaggerating. Literally every single line of that character, I'm sure that actor is not Italian, but he's playing an Italian person. Every single line is just uncut sexual harassment. Why don't you sit on my dick? <laughs> like it's Jared Leto. <laughs> he, he's a traveling mummy going back in time. And starring in this 1987 movie. Yeah, he was the one that I was like, I hate your performance. I hate what you're saying. I hate your entire existence. And what is the point of him? What is the point that his ex or current girlfriend, I was kind of confused, yeah. is harassed the whole time? It's almost like a punishment like for this female character because she's not like gaga over Jonathan, that she actually has some standards that she would like him to uphold and dares demand that he like have a job and not be a loser, that she's then saddled with this guy who's basically trying to rape her in every scene. And then she, at one point, is just like, oh, fine, like like you were saying. Yeah. And it's like... Before I change my mind. Yeah. You'll be sorry! You're making a big mistake! Roxy! Out of his mind, PJ was right. Her when I did that dummy, I'm gonna just tear her hair out! Roxy! Roxy, <sighs> Roxy. You know what you really need to do right now? You need to put him and this whole nasty affair out of your mind. Now, how is the best way to do that, huh? Huh? By having a night of distasteable sex with someone that you care absolutely nothing about. And proudly, I would like to be that person. Fine, let's just go to your place. Really? Drive fast before I have second thoughts. Yeah, and, and I mean, they try to make up for it by having his dick not work. In the moment where they're trying to hook oh, up. Yeah. But then he insults her and says, it's because you're too cold. Of course. Of course. It was like that That plot and both of those characters, I felt like, were the weakest of many weak points. Like, they're, they're fatal flaws as far as I'm concerned. Because even for the time, it was just literally nothing but that nasty guy, like, sexually harassing her constantly. And... She puts up with it. Everyone around them puts up with it. Jonathan even witnesses it happening later on and says nothing. It's a miracle! 
A miracle! And it's just completely taken for granted. And and Chris, I agree with you that it does feel like the universe of this movie is just punishing Roxy for being a bitch and unsupportive. And a successful like career woman. Mm-hmm. Like the good woman in this has no job ambition, yeah. like not even a personality. Like yeah. it, and it's just like that's the ideal woman. And this woman who actually wants things and and dares like try and like do well at her job is the one that like needs to be punished by being leered at the whole time it's nowhere near a redeeming thing but one of my favorite lines in the movie came from when jonathan and roxy were talking near the beginning of the movie and she basically dumps him because he's a loser and can't hold down a job and also can't really finish any of his creative aspirations to fulfill them and she says well i'm not the one who can't deal with reality and jonathan says reality is very disappointing and that was probably, I think, the best line in the movie. I, I wish that more of it had been even remotely that clever or interesting, but but yeah, otherwise that story is just total trash, and it's another woman who has no reason to exist, even as accomplished and you know, professional and having her shit together as she is, the only reason she exists is to serve Jonathan and to serve the creepy guy she works with. You don't think the best line is the Estelle Getty line that ends in, hi, I'm a squid. (laughs) That is just the weirdest non sequitur. That's up there. Mr. Richards, this store has never been more successful and it's all due to Jonathan Switcher. I don't care if he puts a rubber glove on his head and runs naked through the store yelling, hi, I'm a squid. Hi. Morning, Mrs. T. Oh, hello, Jonathan. This morning's window is your most brilliant yet. Thank you. What is happening? (laughs) Stop there. What is happening? In the montage. Oh, oh, the montage? You mean the music video? Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of these movies have a montage, and they can be silly. I like a good montage. <laughs> I like a good, silly, fun, upbeat song, maybe some dancing. <laughs> a I'm- good montage from the 80s, Breakfast Club. They're dancing. Mm-hmm. I remember liking that one. But in this one, they're wearing very elaborate costumes that, again, would not be sold in a department store. Department stores don't just randomly have looks for, like, (laughs) rock stars and, like, old Hollywood. Full-on gangster outfits. Yeah, this is a costume shop, is what they should be at. And they are just, like, acting like they're in a movie. Like, their only motivation could be, you are in a movie doing a montage. You know what this is? It's her being Barbie. Right, yeah. It's literally her being Barbie. But him also being Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) which is it's just all these scenes of them like in the department store at night like theoretically that's a fun idea it's like what would you do in a department store when you're alone at night totally but this isn't what you do they wouldn't even have these things in the department store it's just well yeah and it's like department stores have stuff like sporting goods or like appliances you could do like funny kitchen cooking sequence like you can do 
literally anything in a department store setting. And yet they did And that. they chose things that had <laughs> no logical connection whatsoever. And and yeah, the movie completely stops for them to have this music video. That would make a lot more sense if they were making the window displays during this montage. Yes! Because those window displays just pop out of nowhere then at the end of like a montage <laughs> instead of like they could be doing the montage while they're making a window display. But that's not what happens. No. No. So I learned researching for the episode that this song, Do You Dream About Me, from that montage, was written by Diane Warren as well. I'm thinking that they may have hoped that that song would catch on and become popular, and that they could have just used that as the music video for it. Mm. But yeah, I think it's that's also a good time to talk about the song from this movie that did become a popular hit, uh, which is the song Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now that plays over the end credits sequence of this movie. Where they get married? Where they get married in the store's display window. Because uh-huh. that's a thing that happens in store display windows. Where they stand really still for a second to, like, <laughs> fool us, I guess. <laughs> Legit a great 80s bop. <laughs> really good. I've listened to this song several times. <laughs> <laughs> Driving around. I've had it in my head for a couple days. Yeah. They think we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Diane Warren and Albert Hammond co wrote the song that plays over the end credits, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, performed by Starship. Starship was previously known as Jefferson Starship, which was actually itself a spin off band with members from the band Jefferson Airplane who rebranded in the 80s and took on a very 80s sound and had really huge number one hits, including this song and also the song We Built This City and also another song called Sarah. I don't know if you're familiar with those. For background trivia on this, Albert Hammond, who's himself the father of Albert Hammond Jr., the guitarist in The Strokes, came up with the idea for this song when his divorce was finalized after a very long wait and, I'm guessing, a legal battle. Um, And he was finally legally free to marry his girlfriend, who he'd been (laughs) with for seven years, and feeling very optimistic about their future together. Mm. (laughs) The song reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts, and also hit number one in Canada, Ireland, Portugal, and the U.K., And it was the second best-selling song of the year in the UK, just behind Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Ooh, that's a good pair. Yeah, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, Never Gonna Give You Up. This song was Diane Warren's first hit, and since then, she's become synonymous with chart-topping cheesy power ballads. This was her first hit? First hit. In addition, the success of the song made lead singer Grace Slick, who was in Jefferson Airplane, the oldest woman at the time to release a number one single in the United States. She was 22. (laughs) I think she was like 47 at the time. She was dethroned from this position only by Cher when she released Believe. I was going to say. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now was nominated for an Oscar, a Grammy, and a Golden Globe, but did not win any of those awards. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to know, I'm sure you guys have heard this song before, but like I remember this song being all over the radio forever. I feel like it was on oldie stations even when it was new. <laughs> yeah, it was just a gigantic hit song for years and years, and I know it was very much like closely associated with this movie and the music video is just a total takeoff of this movie, but I wanted to know what you guys' Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now story is. I mean, yeah, it just was on the radio. I knew it. When I was in high school, I bought a 
compilation of all the top theme songs for movies, mostly from like the, the 70s, 80s, 90s. And this was on it. Like this, that's how popular it was. And I still think it's a bop. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Like it is, again, it's such a quintessentially 80s song in every way. And I mean, like it's like entirely synthesized or even the guitar part is synthesized. But there's something about that that is kind of comforting. And the fact that it's so of its time, I think is a is a plus to it. Yeah, it's one of those songs that I know I heard and obviously heard, you know, in this movie, if I made it to the end <laughs> all those times I watched it. But what really made me kind of aware of it was its use in The Skeleton Twins, Mm -hmm. a movie from, I think, around 2014 with Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader, where they're siblings who, like, sing this in a kind of a crucial moment of him having to forgive her for something. And though they don't say this in the movie, I like to imagine that the reason that they have a fondness for this song is because they watched Mannequin as... I together, yeah, totally, and that just reminded me of like me and my sister and the movies that we bonded over as kids, and that we could sing like Brady songs to each other in in the same way that they do in in this movie. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. The only other thing I wanted to say about these movies is just how fucking creepy it is when Kim Cattrall comes to life every time. It's like a horror movie. There's like this sting (laughs) of music. Yes. And it's always just like she like pops into the frame like with a creepy line. Yeah. Or like responding to something Jonathan said offhand and just scaring the shit out of him. Yeah. and, And it really did make me think like what a great horror movie this yes, again, could have been. It made me, like, I really wish it had been, like, a body horror type of movie, you know? And, and yeah, there could have been so much, and it still could have been a comedy. Like, it could have been, like, a pitch black dark comedy, and I think that could be a pretty great way to use that premise. I feel like it's more body horror, though, if she doesn't want to be a mannequin, and she's, like, trapped in this exactly. curse. But she doesn't seem to be upset that she's a mannequin she's even in the second one which we'll talk about like they don't seem upset that they're a mannequin they just are like okay this is what it is well they also they don't they pretty much don't seem upset about anything yeah you know and like the only other thing i wanted to mention other than the very cute english bulldog named rambo who gets wheeled around in a little red wagon by the psycho security guard no, that actually, that was the only more thing. Do- more dogs <laughs> and movies, you got your wish. Exactly. I just appreciated that there were many dog reaction shots in this movie. They did a good job of, like, making the mannequin look like Kim Cattrall. Like, we're in this really unmannequiny valley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a Seth-like pun. I, yeah. I love that. Thank you. That really creeps me out. Because, like, even before she turns into Kim Cattrall, you look at that mannequin and you're like, well, that's Kim Cattrall. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think the sculptor did a brilliant job on that. And I know that Kim Cattrall has at least one of the mannequins. <laughs> there was a clothing store in Philadelphia that in 2019 claimed that they had purchased one of the original mannequins and put a new wig on it that looked terrible and used it to advertise their trashy Philly-branded clothing. Did it bring droves of Philadelphians <laughs> into the yeah. store? Weirdly, that window display did not have crushing mobs of Philly fans clamoring to get in there. But also, Kim Cattrall like, immediately tweeted back at them and was like, I sat for six weeks to get modeled for these mannequins this is not one of me. And I looked at the photo and it actually does not really look like one of her. It may have been one of the other of the many dozens of mannequins they had in other scenes in the movie. Yeah, I just thought that was very funny. What a weird 
lie. <laughs> I know. What a weird specific lie. Like, you don't pretend you got the ruby slippers. You don't go for rosebud. You're like, we got the mannequin. It is I, Jesse, your true love. You're real. Of course I am. You're beginning to frighten me. When was the last time we saw each other? I mean, before our little uh, swim today. Just a few minutes ago on the bridge. What bridge? The one near the castle. We were on our way to be married. Don't you remember the soldiers and the sorcerer? The legend is true. What legend? Um, that, that sorcerer guy, he... He put a curse on you. You... You've been frozen for a thousand years. The sequel, Mannequin on the Move, was released in May 1991. Mannequin on the Move, or Mannequin 2 on the Move, (laughs) was only a movie because of a legal battle between 20th Century Fox and Gladden Entertainment, (laughs) who made the first film. Fox was seeking $4.5 million in lost revenue, citing their distribution agreement with Gladden. The company was forced to produce Mannequin 2 on the move as its 10th release to satisfy foreign distribution and financing agreements. The following year after this, it was reported that Gladden owed over $4.1 million in residuals to the actors, writers, and directorial staff who participated in the film, prompting the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, and the Writers Guild of America to seek a joint involuntary bankruptcy proceeding against the company. The Gladden Company was liquidated in 1995, and all its titles, including the Mannequin films, were sold to a finance corporation. This is how all the best art is made. (laughs) Oh yeah. Real art comes from struggle like this. Mannequin on the Move was released May 17, 1991, and was a flop with critics and audiences alike. With an estimated $13 million budget, and I defy you to find where that money went on screen, (laughs) Mannequin on the Move made only $1.7 million its opening weekend, and grossed only $3.7 million domestically. Oof. Mannequin on the Move stars Christy Swanson as Jessie, a peasant daughter in the fictional kingdom of Hauptmann Koenig, who puts on a cursed necklace that turns her into a mannequin for 1,000 years or until she meets her true love. Or both? It's very unclear. Or both or neither. (laughs) You gotta love those or clauses in magical spells. (laughs) It also stars William Ragsdale as Jason Williamson, the budget Andrew McCarthy for this movie. (laughs) Meshach Taylor reprises his role as Hollywood Montrose. Stuart Pankin plays Mr. James, the new manager of Prince & Company Department Store. And Terry Kaiser plays the bad guy Count Spretzel. Critically, (laughs) Mannequin 2 on the move was brutally savaged. Once more unto the breach, and once more unto the Rita Beat. I'm being paid for this, correct? Rita Kempley spoke for the entire film critic community when she wrote in the Washington Post in 1991, like the 1987 original, Mannequin 2 on the Move is a movie made by four and about dummies. The major link between the two romantic comedies is Meshach Taylor as a mincing sidekick to the reincarnated prince who becomes smitten with an enchanted mannequin. Basically, it's a fairy tale about a sleeping booby, a prince, and a queen. Did she plagiarize herself? (laughs) I think she did. (laughs) Screenwriter and sometime animal trainer Stuart Raffle directs from a screenplay by Ed Rugoff, who also co-wrote Mannequin. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) 
animal trainer? Apparently so. Rigoff is fond of asking and answering the question, what if a mannequin came to life? But judging from Mannequin 2, Raffle is probably better at sweeping up after elephants. The actors, bless their little wooden heads, would be better off pulling puppet strings. And Rita's right about that in more ways than one, because in this movie, the mannequin is a wooden statue of a peasant girl, Mm -hmm. not a mannequin. And it's actually the body of a peasant girl trapped by a cursed necklace uh, to remain inside a wooden doll until she finds her true love. All they had to do was make a movie about a mannequin. (laughs) Who came to life. And she's not even really a mannequin. Nope. They could have taken this story in any direction they literally were like all you have to do screenwriters is is give us a sequel doesn't even have to star the same people just make sure hollywood's in it let's say they're also a department store that's all you need and this is what they came up with and this is what they came up with and i can't even count how many people are included in they because (laughs) there are six named writers credited to this film um which means there were certainly even more writers than that (laughs) yeah this was directed again by stuart raffle who wrote the Wesley Snipes movie Passenger 57 and directed a lot of other crap, including the film Mac and Me. Oh, <laughs> wow, royalty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Real auteur theory happening here. Wow. So I don't know if I had actually seen Mannequin 2 on the move. I'm pretty sure I did, but I just remembered much, much less of this movie. I do know, though, that I've heard a million and one jokes about the title over the years. It's one of those titles, like Mm -hmm. the Fast and Furious movies, that just get kind of satirized in and of themselves just as a funny title. Electric Boogaloo. Exactly. It's a very, very break Mm -hmm. into kind of situation. It's not really that bad of a title. It just doesn't really make any sense with mannequin like <laughs> yeah and he's I mean, not particularly on the move in this movie or in the first movie so yeah she's no more on the move than she is in the she, first movie. she's more on the move because in this one she uh doesn't freeze when people uh, see her she freezes when the necklace is on but she's free to That's roam true well she's free to roam in the first one and there are scenes of kim cattrall like bicycling through the department store but but, but it's behind hollywood's back and he can't see yep. her so this one she is more on the move so I think it's a perfect Move title. more. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, so that's my history with Mannequin 2 on the Move. Chris and Becky, what is yours? I saw this one more. So I remembered this one more. I had more of an affinity for this movie. I think it appealed more to kids. It feels very much more like a kid's movie. I literally didn't remember what the difference between one and two was. It was all the same movie to me okay. in my memory. I think I also remembered it because of Christy Swanson and knowing who she was. And at the time, like, I didn't know Kim Cattrall. So I think... Was she Buffy before this or after this? Right after this. Okay. That was, I think, just one year later. So I don't know that that really overlapped that much. But at some point, like, I saw her in other things. So I think the star power of this one was greater for me personally, (laughs) if not the rest of the world. I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily need to spell out the whole plot of this any further than I just did. So let's just go right into describing what we thought about Mannequin 2 on the move now. Were you moved, Becky? (laughs) Or were you immovable? It was crazy. It's it's crazier than the first one, and the first one is pretty crazy. They say it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, where do you start? The fact that like the conceit of the necklace makes no sense, and how she's going to be a mannequin for a thousand years. 
and then she can have her true love take the necklace off but then only he can take the necklace off but then also the necklace can can make other people mannequins very strange doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense well and the the villain i mean originally in old time medieval times keurig machine whatever the name of that place <laughs> is that, you nailed it that's the name of it hopscotch keurig machine yes <laughs> there's a sorcerer who puts the curse on the necklace who's supposed to be her fiance like his, her her jewish mother <laughs> wants her to marry him but then she he then he curses her what the mom, the mom is the the prince's mom, I think, and she's mad that he would marry a peasant girl. Oh, that wasn't her mom. I thought it was the no, yeah. it was okay. his mom. Got it. Okay. But so then, how many seven hundred years later, whatever yeah. it was supposed to be, the same actor appears as this guy's descendant, but apparently is also obsessed with her. And, and also, it's implied that he's a reincarnated prince, right? So, like, what are the odds of this guy appearing and still being obsessed with her at the same time that she's going to come back to life yeah. like and it's not an ordained like a thousand years why didn't they just make it a thousand years later like why didn't they just have this all start in 10 9 sorry 991 <laughs> why did it have to be medieval times at all because the whole thing is that she gets frozen with this necklace then she becomes an artifact that's on display and is going around the world at department stores as an exhibit not museums, but department stores. And and the enchanted peasant girl is protected by a trio <laughs> of three beefcakes. German beefcakes. German they're hop along Keurig beefcakes, please. Give respect to the name of this foreign country and their people. <laughs> but they're the ones who like go around the world protecting the wooden doll. But also they're involved with the sorcerer, sorcerer but all, guy. Yeah, but also they're involved with the sorcerer guy. It says and the sorcerer guy sense. wants to turn her so he can marry her. So they watched the first movie and they're like, okay, we can start over with the cast, basically. We can do anything we want. And what we're going to keep from the first movie is an ancient plot that doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. And department stores. Like, and Hollywood. We must have these things. Yeah. Even though it doesn't make any sense that this takes place in a department store. No one does any department store work. The entire movie revolves around putting on a musical show. <laughs> in a theater. In a theater that is inside the it department store. inside the thing and they put draperies and like very elaborate things up in this department store that in no way are designed to like have people buy things <laughs> like it's it's just why didn't they just make this in a museum like they didn't have to do a department store. but it's also not supposed to be a show it's a presentation they keep calling it a presentation a so presentation. Presentation. presentation so it's not even something it's is it for like like people on the board of the department store <laughs> like like, the, I don't even know what is happening It doesn't here. appear to be for customers. There's, like, a whole, like, formal, like, sit-down seating area. I think area. it was. I think, ultimately, because I kind of rewatched parts of it, I think what the point of the presentation is to do is to try to get <laughs> funders to put more money into the department store. It's like a show for investors. Okay, that's why it's a presentation, not yes. a show you can get tickets to. Right. But they're taking it very seriously. And now Hollywood is no longer a window dresser at this department store. He is now the choreographer, perhaps slash director of this show. What is his job? 
no, he's, when there's not a presentation. So he got he got promoted. We learn there's some point in the movie where we learn that he got promoted to like chief visual officer or something. He's like the head of all the windows. Now. <laughs> but also the presentation. But he yes. was also he was already basically that in the last movie. Yeah, and theater director. Yeah, the the story of this movie is completely insane. But on the move facts. The plot device of the mannequin as like a traveling show in and of itself has happened in real life in the 1930s. A gay man named Lester Gappa sculpted a mannequin named Cynthia for a New York department store, and she became a national celebrity who toured the country and appeared in movies, uh, had radio appearances somehow, not sure how that worked, (laughs) and was on the cover of Life magazine. What was so special about her? She was a beautiful doll, beautiful blonde doll. Cynthia, quote-unquote, died when she fell in a movie theater and shattered into pieces. <laughs> they had a funeral. I'm sorry. That's how I, I can't move on yet. I can't move yeah. on yet. You're not on the move? <laughs> they had a funeral for her. She lied in state. <laughs> did she get reincarnated like Chucky? And then, like, I'm pretty people? sure she did. I'm pretty sure she did. Yeah, learning that was very shocking. I want to see that movie. <laughs> I want to see that movie too. I want to learn about Lester. 1930s horror movie. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say something. <laughs> I think this movie is better than the first mannequin. Why? Also, I don't know what's better. I think they're equally insane. Hot take train. I chugga think chugga. This is kind of like a Ninja Turtles movie situation where the first one is very tonally confused about whether it's like a kid's movie or a adult movie kind of like look who's talking to which honestly i think the first one is just a mess because it it has this like magical premise kind of but it doesn't really make that much sense and in the second one they actually figure out how to make it like consistent and with like ninja turtles it was like the second one is goofier it's not a great movie but i feel like it is what a ninja turtles movie should be and i think this is what a mannequin movie should be (laughs) is like it's ridiculous it has a stupid plot i wish it was a little bit better in certain ways that we'll continue to talk about i don't think it's a good movie but i think for a mannequin movie like this is more what i want out of that which is something silly and at least like to me this is much more tonally consistent and better made like it doesn't look quite as bad the acting isn't quite as bad oh i defy you I defy thee. I would say that the sorcerer guy, not a good character. Nobody's a good character, but at least he's committing. At least he's committing. Yeah, but it's so, like, fakey arch over the... It's like Looney... Again, it's like Looney Tunes level performances. And this movie, again, Chris, I disagree. I think this movie is considerably worse, especially in costuming. There is some dinner theater-ass level costuming going on in this movie. Also, dinner theater performances. I think Christy Swanson is is horrendous. I think she's horrendous. I enjoy her in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but in this, I just think she is beyond mindless. She's not good, but again, same with Kim Cattrall, I think, is just there's nowhere to go with this character. She's a non-character, as much as Kim Cattrall is. Like, she has no reaction to being frozen for 700 years. And in this one, she didn't have, you know, she didn't date Christopher Columbus or Michelangelo, she is waking up thinking that she just saw her love in the past. And doesn't she say at some point, like, oh, I can't wait to see my family or something? It's like, all your family's dead. And everybody's dead, and and you your life as you know it, and yet no reaction, nothing nope. about I've been frozen. <laughs> like, 
like, yeah. oh my God, let me deal with that because I'm a person with an internal dialogue. Uh, Again, nothing. like we were talking about earlier, there's like no human reactions in this movie. She just immediately loves him. Yeah. Immediately loves him. Amelia throws herself at him. Hi. No, 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 no. Just, just lie still for a minute. Are you okay? I'm Jason Williamson of Germantown, PA. I'm not a prince. I don't care. I still love you. I think you're still in shock. Forever and ever and ever. I don't even know you. Yes, you do. You just haven't realized it yet. You really do love me, don't you? More than anyone is going to in your whole life. It's really gross, these movies with the premise of these women with no wants or desires except to get these men to fuck them, basically. And that's it. And they're just there as objects. And the whole thing of, like, a woman as an object is so gross. And this one takes the Barbie thing further because she looks exactly like Barbie. Her hair somehow is Barbie (laughs) Barbie. Yes. And there's a whole, like, montage of her trying on different clothes, different looks. I'm surprised she didn't wear, like, an astronaut outfit at one point. (laughs) Her hair. (laughs) I remember her being very pretty in this movie. So maybe this looks good in 1991. It does not look good now. It just gets bigger and bigger. (laughs) It does. Their bangs get, like, poofier and poofier. But her hair's still long. Helmet-like. We had to rewind one particular scene, like, five times, because her hair length changed in almost every cutaway. They would cut to her, and her hair would be longer and more boofy, Mm -hmm. and then they'd cut back, and it would be shorter. There's more, like, fish-out-of-water, like, she's from another time humor in this that I did appreciate, that I wish the first movie would have done more of, too, because that's the stuff that I think makes Splash fun, too, is, like, when a character is not from this time or place, like... Fish-out-of-water. Yeah, yeah, which that is literally that movie. (laughs) Yeah, so there's some fun stuff with that, and that's the most that she gets to do, but it's just sad how little the many writers of this movie considered what a human would think of actually being in this situation. There's no even, like, gesture toward, like, hmm, I'm suddenly several centuries out of my time, and my family's dead, and... So why don't I serve a man about it? That's what both of these movies completely boil down to. And both, like, end, it's just, like, her 
goal is to just get married to this guy and then she does it and that's all like does she have an ambition beyond that nope like is she gonna do anything in this world no and like how much more interesting it would be there was some kind of commentary about like wow like as a woman in the 1300s i was really Mm -hmm. oppressed and i was property and this and that and now i have all this freedom that would be fun that's not in this movie nope it's not no, to me, Meshach Taylor is the only intermittently interesting thing in this one as well. Lights. Excitement. Show business my life. He's been promoted at the store, but of course he takes on the exact same mentor role uh, to Jason that he did for Jonathan. They couldn't even move away from J names. Wow. He saves the day later, helping keep Jesse the doll safe. Jesse. Jesse. A medieval times kind of name. Yeah. Right. Extremely German. (laughs) Hollywood has a great scene where he's pretending to be a gruff military guy to break Jason out of prison. He also has a great moment in the department store where he yells out, Ooh, get down. And an old woman who's shopping at the store calls back, Get down. He's also the bouncer at the club. At, at, like the, he's not Hollywood at that moment. He's the actor just playing a different role, and I, I just find him fun. Oh yeah, yeah. Come on in. Nice to see you again. <laughs> oh, the crab dude. This not me. Come on and have a good time, though. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. You, your boyfriend's still in prison. Yeah. Good. No, 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 no. Now you're gone. Look, just join your friend. What'd y'all do? Take the bus up from Jersey? Get on out of here. Hey, lose your boyfriend. You in, darling. Bye, Tony. Step off, Junior. Ooh, let's go in here. Look at this, yo. This is the most exclusive club in the city. Yeah, I've been trying to get in here since it opened. There's no way. Oh, that's too bad. It's just for royalty, huh? Hey, 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 hey. Goldilocks. Come here. Girl, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Frozen. Yeah, come on in, come on in. Really? Yeah, come on. Hey, you and me dance a little later. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, what's this prom night? Take a hike, man. Yeah, yeah. I hate taffeta. I was a little bit distracted by that only because it was very noticeable to me that it was him. But I thought he did a great job of that and like definitely looks and acts enough like a different person that you like. But that's why it makes me like him as Hollywood even more because you see just a little snippet of like, oh, he's not actually like that. He's acting. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the other big question this movie left me with was, where is the mannequin of Hollywood Montrose? Because there's a moment in this where he puts on the necklace (laughs) and he becomes a Hollywood mannequin. And someone made that mannequin and that mannequin is somewhere. You know, it's like Planet Hollywood, like uh, like in the middle of like in Finland or something. No, it's that store in Philadelphia. They've got it. (laughs) Maybe Kim Cattrall has it. Yeah, I also really liked that scene where Hollywood dresses up as a drill sergeant or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's named like be. Sergeant Butch. <laughs> he's literally oh, named. That his real... Yeah, he's named Butch. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty great. You got a name? Staff Sergeant Butch Montrose. Not yours, the prisoners. Oh, <laughs> Williamson, sir. Jason Williamson. The nut with the dummy? I know it's sad, isn't it? Hey, Al. Take this guy down to the holding cell. Give him 307. You know, the dummy kid. Thank you, sir. Hey! (laughs) You didn't sign these. So sorry. Todd. 
Because it, again, like, gives him way more to do than you would think. Like, usually it's, like, the main character doing that. And to see, like, this movie play with sexuality like that and, like, the, the a gay man, like, having to play straight is not something you would expect to find in a movie like this or something that these writers would consider when they are so boneheaded about everything else. Like, <laughs> that is a scene that could go in a real legitimate movie because it's it's cleverly written. You know, there's a lot of, like, fun jokes with him, like, slipping out of the, like, butch persona and then, like, back in and covering. And, and I think his performance has gotten a lot better in this film as well. Like, it just feels... There's a little bit less, like, shrieking and kind of campiness to it. And it's a little bit... He's, more lived he feels in. more like a real character. Yeah, it's way more lived in. It's a lot more even. I like also a moment with Hollywood when the three buff German guys are like, I forget what they're even talking about, but like for some reason Hollywood is at their groin level and he's like looking at their groins like... It, like it's because he had the necklace on and was the statue. They pull the necklace off of him, but kind of like pull him over and he lands like yeah. on his back or falls on his back and is like waking up. And he's like looking at the groins. And the reason I like that is because it does give him some sexuality without being totally over. Like his tongue isn't rolling out of his mouth. Um, <laughs> but it's like, yes, this character is interested in men. Um Oh, oh, you know, he's looking at their packages and, you know, not like being it, it almost was subtle how he was looking at their packages. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the movie doesn't call attention to that moment. It just happens and it passes. Yeah. And I, and I like that. And so many movies with gay characters, I'm thinking of like my best friend's wedding or, or millions of other things like their, their sexuality is taken away. Like that, they, yeah. that they're gay, but you don't, you wouldn't know that unless they told you that. And even just a moment like that is understated but still there. And the, even they don't have, like, the German guys, like, react negative right. to it, I don't think, either. Yeah. And it makes me wonder what happened between... Well, I mean, this was 91, so this was the 90s, technically. Mm-hmm. Obviously continuing a character that was created in the 80s. But, like, just something happened in the 90s where, like, gay panic just became, like, the biggest thing in the world. And for 10 or 20 years, like every movie that touched on something gay had to, like, remind us constantly that the straight man was not gay, and he had to, like, always react against it. I think, in part, it was following up on the conservative movement in America's demonization of especially gay men. That didn't begin with the AIDS crisis, but it was exponentially magnified by that. And it feels like Hollywood, the industry in its own kind of reactionary, stupid, backward-looking, always right-wing-leaning way, reacted to that by finding their own way to be homophobic in ways that were socially acceptable at the time. Yeah, just, I mean, it became not even just movies, but, like, in culture, that was a big thing in the 90s. It might have been the fact that it's like you 
you get a little bit of visibility and then people get scared. Like women joining the workforce, you see powerful women in media and then they want to take it back by showing you disclosure and saying this is what happens when Mm -hmm. women join the workforce. And so the more that gay people were represented in pop culture, the then a reaction happened where it's like, oh, but I'm not gay. You know, like, oh, we'll have a gay person in this movie, but I'm not gay. And then it just like, it kind of like bounces back to being like, well, we have a gay person in this movie, but I need you to make sure that I'm not gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I have been watching a lot of older, like classic movies in the, especially in the past couple years. And like my impression before watching a lot of these movies and, you know, kind of going back to all the movies we've gone on this podcast is that things progress forward. <laughs> and like, you know, I saw a lot of the 90s depictions, like My Best Friend's Wedding and In and Out and The Birdcage is like, oh, that was like the beginning of like representation of certain types of characters. And, you know, it got better after that. But, like, it's funny how much worse the 90s look than 1987 and this Hollywood character. And even going back to some queer-coded characters in, like, 30s, 40s, 50s movies, like, they're treated better than characters in the 90s. It's very strange to, like, just see how culture regressed for, like, pretty brief period, because things are a lot better now. Still imperfect, but, you know, there was just, like, this 10 or 20 years where it was just, like, went hardcore after, like, making sure that everyone knew that straight men were not gay. I would contest the idea that representation is better now. I think if anything, this same corporate inclination to strip the humanity and the subjectivity and that kind of like lived-in feeling from characters and movie productions has made it so that now representation is a thing that's only like hinted at. And so you know, fans of Marvel movies or DC movies are are left scrambling every time a new iteration of their stupid fucking movies comes out to, like, see who might be queer-coded, but you never see those people have an actual relationship, or if they even mention it, it's entirely off-screen, even if they're a somewhat leading character. Well, I totally agree with you in those type of movies yeah. that there's no representation. And, and, yeah. and of course, there is there is much more nuanced representation of queer characters and different kinds of queerness in more movies now. But at least as far as what the industry produces and what actually rakes in the most box office dollars, it's not those movies. And that kind of representation isn't necessarily financially rewarded by mass audiences. Isn't like every Disney movie, it's like, in this one, it's the first gay character yes. who's who says I'm gay. And this is the first one where there's a gay kiss. And We've this got is a the gay first rock one. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they want, they want to feel inclusive without actually showing like a relationship or or giving that gay character anything to do they want to take the credit they want to get they want to be given the credit for being progressive when they're not even paying lip service and yeah that's the thing that's kind of infuriating to me even aside from the comic book moviness of it all the way that they dissolve down identity into like a checkbox that they don't even then really check off is really offensive to me and insulting in a way that even Hollywood Montrose at his most overblown doesn't offend or insult me because that feels like a person and it feels like a character. The other thing that surprised me about this, and I don't know how much y'all might have picked up on it, is that the the presentation um, (laughs) is really actually closer to 
ballroom. It's actually closer to like a ballroom <laughs> drag performance that would have been represented in something like Paris is Burning than it is like a fashion show. Because he um, direct he choreographed it. I know. There were elements that were recognizable as that, but especially in the second movie, Hollywood's character reminded me a lot of drag figures like RuPaul. And I think that was a moment of representation that, again, is not one that the movie hammers on its head and says, this is what we're doing, but was kind of interesting and, again, more thoughtful than everything else about this movie was. Once upon a time, a peasant girl was victim of a crime. Was frozen ever since, she dared to love the handsome prince. Is that so wrong? But alas, a thousand years have passed since that spell from hell had been cast. Where is she? Today, my friends, that spell will end. Ladies and gentlemen, Prince and Company is proud to present our beloved, enchanted peasant girl. And here to free her forever with the kiss of life, the Prince. That's my kid. I don't even know if it was intentional to have that be the showstopper moment of the movie, but it was interesting to me that that was that. Not only is Holly, like, all of the dancers are Black gay men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of occurs to me that this was a stepping stone because what kind of came next was cultures becoming more comfortable with, like, drag and drag queens. Yes. Because RuPaul became a celebrity. There was, like, Tu Wong Fu and mm-hmm. Priscilla, Queen of, Queen the, of Desert. the Desert. It's like, culture became okay with, like, queerness if it was, like, so queer that it was in drag, but, like, less comfortable with, like, someone presenting more as a man who would be gay. So it had to be kind of, like pushed in that direction for it to be accepted. In one way, yes, but I think it's also a stepping stone in the sense that many movies like Some Like It Hot that came before would have men who we know for a fact are straight and who in in the movie are pursuing women using drag as their kind of con to, to get with those women. So I do think that like having the representation of a gay man in the milieu of ballroom and of drag was kind of like another stepping stone. And again, it's like surprising that it's at the end of this movie. There's a hot air balloon fight. <laughs> Gotta have one of those. Gotta have that. I did I did definitely remember a mannequin falling from a hot air balloon <laughs> and shattering on the shattering table. on the street. All right, yeah. I need to talk about this. She's on the move. She doesn't have to go back to the department store. They could literally just leave. He could quit his job. Who's going to say, like, you're actually a mannequin? You know, like, this whole conflict is just so created to, like, like well, it doesn't make any sense. He started his job there that day. <laughs> so it's not like he's, like, invested in his career. Right, and it's like, it's it goes back to how... Every single thing that happens in this movie clearly happens just within the confines of the running time of this movie. And, like, there's no universe outside of the running time of this movie for any of these characters. Like, this guy popped out of thin air just as much as mm-hmm. Jesse, the man, the wooden doll, did. 
Yeah, it just makes no, like, it's like they try so hard to get people to, like, capture her. When she gets confronted with the sorcerer guy who is, like, holding out the necklace, she doesn't even try to fight, you know, or yell and scream or something. Like, it's so stupid. (laughs) And I hate it. Was Estelle Getty too good for this movie? (laughs) Did they not get her back? (laughs) I guess Kim Cattrall was too good. She's too good for a lot of things, but... yeah. What's a better thing for her to miss out on in Just Like That or Mannequin 2? <laughs> I feel like they should have used the excuse in and Just Like That. Oh, she went back to the future. <laughs> like, she's actually been an ancient mummy. Oh, I was years. gonna say, oh, she got trapped in a department store window and she can't escape now. <laughs> well... We can't not mention the garbage truck scene. (laughs) We have to mention the garbage truck scene. Garbage truck scene is the three German Bavarian dudes, I'm calling them Germans, need a lift because the mannequin was taken by Jason and and Hollywood. And so they need to get back to the department store to make sure the mannequin's okay. And so they decide to hitchhike, but they do that by taking off all their clothes and like making muscles. And they're all like muscly, like bodybuilder guys. And then two, two garbage truck women are driving. As you frequently see two women in a (laughs) Riding in tandem. And then they see them are hot for them and pick them up with the gar like literally the garbage truck takes- and they're they're dan they're like break dancing basically in the road and then i presume they're break dancing in the garbage truck <laughs> it's your fault no it's your fault we have to catch a ride i know how hey look oh i don't believe this i don't believe it Whoa! Hey! All right, let's give him a ride! Baby! Yeah! Get in, get in! Get in! Hot dog drink, big boy! Take a mop! I love that moment so much. There are like 30 cutaways from the women to the guys, and they're like making like a wooga. Yeah, they're doing a woogas. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere because we've barely been introduced to these characters. Yeah. And and it's just it it fits this movie perfectly though. <laughs> like the insanity. I mean, them filming it on the day, they must have been like, What are we doing? How are we filming this? <laughs> they seemed very game for this scene. <laughs> My God. Yeah, this (laughs) definitely has the trappings more of a kid's movie. Absolutely. I'm still not sure I would show it to children. And I don't know. Is there inappropriate stuff in this movie? I'm not even sure. Do they sleep together? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, the first one definitely has them like nearly naked, like covered by sheets, her flashing. Yeah, but I don't think this one has that. So. Oh, and in the first one, they like overtly, someone overtly mentions like, oh, y'all, you had sex with that doll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This one, no, I don't think that they have sex. I think there's some sexuality, you know, with, like, the the guys, like, stripping on the street. But mostly it's just, like, the dumbest thing that a kid might like with a, I want to say mustache-twirling villain, but it was a hairy mole. Twirling. (laughs) It's, again, such a stupid joke. It's such a dumb, It's It's really gross. Dumb joke. I read a review that compared it to, like, plastic vomit, and, like, that totally makes sense. It is, Yeah. Count Gunter Spretzel of Hauptmann-König, Honig, 
may I say what a pleasure it is to, on behalf of, on behalf of Prince and uh, company. Why are you what you look at? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Sorry. On behalf of Prince and Company, may I say, what a pleasure it is to have you here. Ward, here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, ah, Count Spritzel. Spritzel. Pretty. May I present Hollywood Montrose, our chief of visual merchandising and an artist in every sense of the word. He is the gentleman who is in charge of your display. This, this feels like it doesn't have an animated sequence in it like the first one does, but this feels like the whole movie should have been a cartoon. feels like a cartoon. It feels very Disney-influenced with the whole Prince plot. It honestly has that sort of level of humor, and you, you could imagine like things going like, boing, and, and things like that. So I know the answer to this, but why didn't they make it a male mannequin for the sequel with a woman. A, a man akin? A man akin. Clearly the answer is because women are objects. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah. like, it was right there. <laughs> it was right there. Especially in this movie, I do see the figure of Hollywood Montrose as being a kind of almost shamanistic figure. And, like, the presentation and, like, all that stuff, like... It's kind of like almost summoning rituals in a way for magic. Queer people in various cultures, like in, in folklore, have been those kind of shamanic figures, and they have been allowed, socially permitted to like transgress the normal like gender norms of a society and allowed to like live on the fringe because that's part of their like connection to the spirit world and the broader universe. But I was sad, especially after watching this sequel, that Hollywood doesn't get to use that magic to help himself. That there's not one moment where, like, he's able to find a true love and, like, put a necklace on him, or he doesn't find, like, a wooden doll that he can break the curse of. And again, it, like, made me long for a version of at least one of these movies, if not both, that was, like, centered on Hollywood to see if, like, Hollywood can corral the forces of the universe into providing him true love. Because he, as a character in both of these movies, he earns it. He's hustling more than anyone. He's creating, on screen at least, more than anyone else is creating. We're giving this movie a lot of credit for what they did, but, like, I feel like for the time period and for what it was, that would have been too far. Oh, of course. Absolutely, it would have been way too far. And yeah, they wouldn't have gotten financing for having a movie with a gay black lead. But I think one of the reasons we're bringing this up is because it's so weird that both of these movies center on a straight white guy who, in the first one, becomes a window dresser, And then the second one is, like, helping choreograph a presentation. (laughs) They don't belong in this movie. Like, you could cut them out, and they don't... Like, the movie doesn't change. Like... If anything, anything, the animated women dolls have an easier go of it if you cut the men out entirely. (laughs) Yeah, it's just... It's weird that the plots are so gay and require this kind of gay character to sort of make it feel authentic because without hollywood none of this would make any sense at all and none of it would happen mm -hmm. literally nothing in either movie would happen without hollywood because you can't actually imagine these men coming up with these things like (laughs) 
they this guy wouldn't have come up with those window displays and this guy wouldn't be like choreographing this random museum show in a department store so it's weird that they didn't come up with a plot that like somehow makes more sense like that he is i don't know an executive on the board or you could go a million different ways with this <laughs> and they didn't go any of those ways mm-hmm. and then of course finally nothing's gonna stop us now reprises <laughs> its role as the the closer of this movie thank and- god yeah. When it started, I like felt a palpable sense of relief wash over me. I kept getting confused. What movie is the song from? It's from both movies. <laughs> it's from both. And in the same part of both. It's the theme. The closing theme. The closing theme. And yet something did stop them because they stopped at two movies. <laughs> no more mannequin. There was no mannequin series now? There should have been a Hollywood series. He has a life outside this movie. He's got plans. Yeah, you know? sadly, Meshach Taylor passed. Aww. So he would not be able to bring his performance of Hollywood Montrose back, sadly. But there's still the mannequin out there somewhere. <laughs> there's still so... that mannequin out there somewhere. And if you take his necklace off... He has such good fashion, especially in this movie, with like he has matching scissor earrings mm-hmm. and scissor... Yes. Sunglasses. Elton John would be would approve. I, I've been taking screenshots from both of these movies, <laughs> especially to highlight Hollywood's fashions. Yeah, there are a lot of great outfits. I feel like Hollywood's fashion stands out, especially in this movie, much more than the peasant girl. Hers stands out, but not... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> in a, like, you bought that at Ross... It has a slit, right? Doesn't her dress have a slit? It's gold lame. She has a slit all the way up to her butt cheek on her dress and is wearing like a gold lame cape. It looks very Halloween costume-esque. Yeah, it's it's dinner theater Halloween-ish. Now it's time to throw our mannequins in the mannequin shredder on this episode (laughs) of When We Were Young. Bye! (laughs) On our next episode... Becky, do you prefer your fiction pulp and your killer's natural born? (laughs) Yes, I do, Chris. Then I think you'll love our next episode, which finally gets around to Quentin Tarantino, one of the biggest breakout filmmakers of the 90s, with a film he wrote, Natural Born Killers, and a film he directed, in case you haven't heard. And wrote. (laughs) And wrote, Pulp Fiction. Both that came out in the same year, in 1994. Yeah, he had quite a good year that year. I did too. I was in fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did you have a similar year to Quentin How many massacres did you go on? Mm, statute of limitations. Not quite up yet. Also, I prefer my fiction non, and I prefer my killers adopted. <laughs> well, As opposed to natural. You can skip the next episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to cover Tantino. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. You can also check us out on TuneIn and contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can make more episodes of the show that we give to you for free. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. And I love the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> Let them see we're crazy. I don't care about that. Put your hand
crazy. What do 